Andy Jones. And NATO gathers in Wales and so do its problems. One of the most important summits in the history of our alliance. A crucial summit at a crucial time. We are faced with a dramatically changed security environment. Afghanistan fighting in Ukraine and the rise of Islamic State. But can 60 world leaders in just two days fix anything? Hello, I'm Paula Middlehurst. Well, today, what is billed as the most important NATO summit in its 65-year history got underway in Newport in South Wales. And on the line, the reputations of President Obama, David Cameron and Angela Merkel, and, of course, NATO itself. Here's NATO's Secretary-General, Anders Fogh Rasmussen. One of the most important summits in the history of our alliance. A crucial summit at a crucial time. We are faced with a dramatically changed security environment. To the east, Russia is attacking Ukraine. To the southeast, we see the rise of a terrorist organization, the so-called Islamic State, that has committed horrific atrocities. To the south, we see violence, insecurity, instability. Here at the summit, we will take important steps to counter these threats and to strengthen the defence of our allies. Well, I'm joined here in the studio by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Chris, is this really the most important summit meeting of the Alliance? Perhaps not the most important. I mean, 1962, Cuba, 63, the end of Kennedy's assassination, 67, the June War, right? Uh, and then, interesting, 81, when Russia was threatening Poland. But what's interesting to me is that if you go back... You know, we go back in the story about Ukraine. Do you remember what happened when the Russians went into Crimea? NATO said, right, sanctions, yep. One of the sanctions was to exclude um, Russia from something they'd been taking part in for a long, long time, and that was the NATO Cooperation Council. They would have been here at the summit. The one person who is not at that summit but is the main source of discussion is Putin. A, so lack, the, the, a lack of forward thinking then, perhaps? Well, I mean, you could have actually said, do you want to come? But it was, it was part of the sanctions. You're now excluded from the from World Council. And that is very important. But it's interesting that the one sanction they thought was powerful when they have a big discussion, the one man that they could get in the margins, in the corridors of, uh, of, of that meeting, ain't there. He's in Mongolia. What's he doing in Mongolia? You do go to Mongolia when you've got a problem uh, west, west, of, west of Moscow and also the, the fact in, in Mongolia there are dissident groups and he wants to sort of be there, show his, show his strength. And secondly, uh, just a reminder, I think what we're doing in Eastern Europe, we could do it if we wanted to in Mongolia because this is going to spread. So back to the NATO summit itself, uh, you were saying earlier on it's not so much about the conversations that are had at the official meeting tables, it's those sideline conversations, the corridor conversations that are going to be so pivotal in this uh, discussion. About a week ago, uh, the NATO officials 
in, in touch with all the governments. Uh, and although there are 60-odd um, heads of state there, in fact, there are only 28 members of NATO, that's all that matters, they had agreed a communique, more or less, in draft. Things have moved on very quickly. It's in the margins when you can actually say, look, we're not going to come up with a definitive, definitive plan of what we're going to do, but they talk to people. They love to press the flesh. Uh, somebody goes back to his country and says, I've been talking... You know, as I told Obama, well, he didn't tell Obama anything other than how nice to meet you. But the next stage, when this goes, all these issues go to the United Nations, it may be that corridor talking in Cardiff or Newport, that's when you get the yes votes on your side at the United Nations when you need them, except for one yes vote because it ain't there. Russia. Hold that thought, Christopher Lee. Let's speak to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who's actually there. Hello, James. Uh, let us know what's actually being talked about then on day one. Well, day one, the official agenda is a, a big meeting on Afghanistan and then uh, a, a meeting with Ukraine, which is not a NATO member, uh, but a partner. And as Chris was saying, you know, we don't have President Putin here. We do have the Ukrainian president. If, this, if these meetings are about sending messages, I think that's the big message being sent. But the thing that actually everybody is really talking about that's not specifically on the agenda is Islamic State. You have leaders arriving here very aware that uh, two Western journalists have just been executed by Islamist militants, that a uh, British national is facing the same threat. And that's, you know, I think that's probably a lot of the corridor talk, even if it's not around the official NATO. And, and that due for that, that James, sorry to interrupt you. Due for discussion tonight, of course, at Cardiff Castle. The main discussions today being Afghanistan and Ukraine. Uh, as far as day two goes, are we going to be looking at discussion about ISIS on day two? Uh, again, I think you will see it in in the margins. The, the important thing tomorrow is you have the North Atlantic Council, the heads of state, having two big meetings, and their defence and foreign ministers also having separate meetings. This is about NATO's own future rather than firefighting, but the firefighting feeds into it. What they will deliver is uh, a new readiness action plan. That will see uh, equipment and troops uh, more concentrated in East Europe, troops rotating through. Um, but I think they will be looking to be able to show they're responding to the Islamist uh, militant threat as part of that readiness action plan because it's... It's not just meant to be a response to Russia. Uh, we're having a little bit of a difficulty, uh, James, with, with your link, so apologies to our listeners for that. But I think it's worth persevering with, uh, with the, this line of questioning, as, especially as you're actually there. Uh, just outline for us, if you can, the crunch points in this summit. Well, the, the, the real crunch point comes uh, around that readiness action plan. Everybody likes the idea, but they have been warned it is going to cost. And NATO's defence spending has been falling for quite some years now. Uh, each country is supposed to spend 2% minimum of gross domestic product. Britain, the US, uh, uh, Greece and Estonia, I think, are the only four that do. And there's going to be a real push to get everybody to stump up to that 2%, to be increasing their defence spending as their economies recover. And I think getting agreement from all 28, because it's supposed to run by consensus, that's going to be the really difficult one here. So Ukraine then, top billing if you like, that's the one that NATO leaders have got a crack. 
Oh, well, it seems we have lost our link there to James Hurst uh, uh, there at the uh, NATO summit in Wales. We'll work on that. In the meantime, let me just tell you, James did speak earlier this week with Sir Tony Brenton. Uh, he's the former British ambassador to Moscow. Firstly, I think the concern is exaggerated. What we're seeing Russia do in Ukraine isn't the bear on the prowl again. It's Russia defending what it sees as its, as its legitimate interests in Ukraine. They're not planning to move on from Ukraine to, I don't know, Latvia, Estonia, what have you. But that said, there are, as you say, real concerns, and NATO should obviously move some direction, some distance, towards meeting those concerns. And the idea of having some sort of rapid response force able, able to, to assist those countries in case of threat seems to me to be a good one. But that should go with actually meeting some Russian concerns with regard to those countries themselves. In Latvia and Estonia in particular, there are Russian-speaking minorities who are disadvantaged in terms of civic rights in a, in a scandalous way, in a way which the West has preferred not to talk about, which could provide the Russians with a reason to intervene there if they chose to, which those countries should be encouraged to do something about. NATO is talking about pre-positioning equipment, having a persistent presence of of forces for in, in bases, rotating people through for training, that is going to look like military escalation, isn't it? It's going to look like a legitimate response to what a lot of countries see as the expansionist aims of Russia. As I say, I don't think that that fear is real, but the trouble is that if the Russians succeed, they've succeeded with Crimea, if they now succeed in eastern Ukraine, that generates confidence for potentially another step. And so we do need to be signalling to the Russians that whatever eventually happens with regard to Ukraine, NATO remains a firm alliance which will resist any aggression against it. You are a diplomat. You're, you're not a military man, but you understand the full spectrum of, of levers of power. So what would you think NATO should come up with at, at this summit to deliver its best chance of turning this Ukraine crisis into a blip in relations with, with Russia and, and, and moving forward and, and getting back on the path of security through getting on? Well, I mean, NATO's going to have to do some tough things. There's all this stuff about strengthening NATO's military posture with regard to the East and so on. NATO will have to say some firm things about um, the wrongness of countries like Russia interfering in the internal affairs of countries like Ukraine. But over and above that, what NATO could also do is, first of all, call for ceasefire, which the West has not done, begin to try and get the temperatures down in East Ukraine, and secondly, reaffirm all of the words which were produced at the time of the establishment of the Russo-NATO Council and all of that about our long-term interest in finding a stable security relationship with Russia, which will benefit both sides. That was Sir Tony Brenton, former ambassador to Moscow, talking to James Hurst earlier this week. Well, on the line to us now, also at the summit, Bridget Can Kendall, rather, the BBC's diplomatic correspondent. Uh, thanks for joining us, Bridget. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of what NATO can achieve uh, today, how can they persuade Putin, a man who isn't even bothered about sanctions, it seems, to back off? Well, they don't seem to be. Certainly, uh, NATO Secretary General and many of the leading countries in NATO don't seem uh, inclined to try and persuade him. Uh, the, their position is that he has um, behaved in a way which uh, 
violates Ukraine's sovereignty, first in Crimea and then in eastern Ukraine, and that he must be deterred at all costs from thinking that he could go any further, certainly um, threatening countries which are now part of NATO, particularly the Baltic states, which is where President Obama was yesterday. And that's precisely why he was there, to give a strong message both to them and to the Russians. So perhaps persuade is the wrong word, and that's part of the problem in this, in this crisis, that both sides are upping the ante one after another, and it seems quite hard to get away from this escalating ladder of tension. And of course central to all this is the fact that uh, Russia denies any involvement in Ukraine in the very first place. Would it help if the US and others produced hard evidence to contradict that? Well, you know, what, what evidence is hard enough? They have produced satellite imagery. The Russian foreign minister last week, I think it was last week, that he dismissed them as looking just like video games. And it is always difficult whether you produce um, moving footage of apparently hardware and uh, tanks and trucks carrying troops. And even if you can identify where those shots were taken... And even if it, there's some way of showing the day, there will always be those on the other side who say, well, this could be manipulated footage. Or if you produce intercepts of conversations, people can say those are doctored. I've seen very convincing reports on Russian television taking apart some uh, intercepts that have come out of Ukraine, showing just how they thought the conversations were spliced in order to give incriminating responses when, in fact, it was all just edited and manufactured. And if I was an ordinary Russian watching, I'd be pretty convinced by that sort of thing. Thing. So the problem is it is very hard to come up with the evidence. I think it is interesting if you watch closely what is um, being uh, broadcast on central Russian television, which is the way most Russians are getting their information about Ukraine, except for those who go to the Internet from an alternative point of view. There have been reports in the last few days making clear that there are Russians in eastern Ukraine, but if they are there, they are volunteers, or as the Russians put it, Russian servicemen who are on holiday there in their own time. And there are even some special forces, they say, and there are even people who are being killed, which seems to me like the Russian um, state-run main television softening up, if you like, the Russian population for the fact that there will be an admission that there is a, more of a Russian presence in eastern Ukraine. And what's more, there are consequences. There are families who will be losing boys as a result of it. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is, is still with us here. Uh, and you were indicating just a moment ago, Christopher, uh, the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. Not really the possibility, but I mean, it would be very complicated if they wanted to, wouldn't it? Ukraine has... Um, the, the inference is that uh, Ukraine would like to be, you say, a member of the EU and then even of NATO. And a lot of people in NATO, 28 countries in NATO, says no, no way... No way do we want them because of all the... That means that we've, we've legitimised what's going on in Ukraine. And there are loads of people at that NATO meeting today who are not 100% behind what uh, Ukraine's, been, Ukraine's been doing. The other part of it is that this lack of evidence... I mean, uh, Bridget, you know, you're talking about, well, you know, you see satellite pictures, you hear electronic in intelligence and it could be doctored. The sort of intelligence could come from, one could come from a different source. For example, the French have two satellites over there. If the intelligence came from somebody that wasn't America, NATO doesn't have its own intelligence group. It doesn't have its own satellites. It relies entirely on American or mostly on America. But there are other things. What you do, you take photographs and you can get this off videos, you can get this off newsreels of boots. You look at the boots, the disruptive pattern boots that the special forces wear and nobody else wears them. Now, you look at those and say, right, these guys have got those, that's one indicator. You look at the sort of trousers they wear. 
the sort of combat trousers which are exclusive and they, uh, they, they, they are made in a certain place by a certain people in, 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 in Russia. Nobody else gets those. Well, certainly radicals and rebels don't get them. You look at the fuel cans that are lying around for refueling small vehicles, not the, not, not the big geese of, uh, vehicles, um, uh, like the heavy lift vehicles that are bringing tanks in. And then you look at the you know, discarded patterns. I mean, the, 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 the Russians are like any other lot. They, they throw things away. Discarded patterns, uh, boxes, uh, packages of field rations. You but, then build up that sort of picture. But, Chris, the problem is that, you know, locking in the chain of evidence uh, that those boots were actually worn by Russians and so on, if there's so little trust, it's very difficult, even with a French satellite, I think, to convince Russian officialdom, let alone public, about this. I mean, let's note that yesterday, or I think it was this morning, the Russian Foreign Ministry, in response to the news that President Hollande has decided to delay delivery of helicopter carriers to Russia, a a real snub on the eve of the NATO summit, Uh, The Russian foreign ministry said, thank goodness uh, President de Gaulle isn't alive to see the shame of this day when uh, France is burying its independence in the fires of American ambition. So as far as the Russians are concerned, the French are also persona non grata now in this conflict. They've also joined the other side. And it's very difficult, I think, when you come to this question of evidence, if there is no trust at all on either side, to deliver anything that one side or the other won't say is fabricated. Bridget Kendall, for the moment. Thank you very much indeed. This is BFBS. Sit rep. So David Cameron and President Obama saying they'll not waver in their determination to confront the Islamic State militants who've murdered two American journalists and are threatening to kill a British hostage. How they plan to do that is still unclear. BFBS reporter Tim Cooper has spoken to Sir Christopher Mayer, former British ambassador to Washington, and Tim asked him how Britain and NATO should deal with the threat from IS. Well, we need a strategy, as the United States President said a few days ago, And the NATO summit in Wales is an ideal opportunity in which like-minded powers, the members of NATO and their partners, can actually discuss what do we do with ISIL. And I would hope that after the summit there will be some kind of statement, some kind of declaration that will at least start to sketch out what a possible strategy should be. The strategy we have at the moment is US airstrikes, British military assets used in a supporting role, as it were, Do you think there ought to be, coming out of this NATO summit, a coalition that will broaden out this military response to ISIL? Yeah, I think there should be some kind of coalition that emerges from the the NATO summit, not necessarily all the member states, but certainly some of the member states, uh, to do things together, not just on their own, but with the regional powers in the Middle East. Because don't forget, countries like Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia... Uh, the Gulf states, Iran, all have a responsibility for tackling ISIL. So when we talk about a strategy here in the United Kingdom or in the United States, we're talking about a coalition of the willing, which includes some num- uh, some members of NATO, but also the regional countries. They need to step up to the plate as well. Mr Fallon, the Defence Secretary, talking here in Ruthie today, says it's time for NATO to be tough. That would be the right sort of message, wouldn't it, if there could be a strong alliance coming out of this summit? Well, of course you need resolution in this. You need resolution, you need resolve. Uh, You don't allow yourself to be intimidated by these barbarian spokesmen uh, for ISIL. Um, uh, You know, we have to do what is right to stop the spread of ISIL's influence in the Middle East, not just for the sake of the region, but because it also affects our own 
national interest, the British national interest, the American, the European, uh, we must show resolution. And, of course, one of the things that uh, ISIL is trying to do is to intimidate us from taking any further action and putting us in a hideous humanitarian and moral difficulty. That was Sir Christopher Mayer talking to Tim Cooper. Well, we're joined now by former ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green. Thank you for joining us. Let's talk, talk first, rather, about the West's reaction then to IS and this latest beheading. Uh, David Cameron saying any action, including military force, mustn't be over the heads of neighbouring states. How can that be achieved? Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I agree with what Christopher Mayer was saying just now. I think, uh, first of all, that uh, action against ISIL must be regionally led. I'll come back to that. Uh, secondly, there must be no uh, Western boots on the ground. We've had too much experience of how that can go badly wrong. And thirdly, we must be determined uh, to tackle ISIL and not be uh, distracted by their, their vicious threats against prisoners. Uh, but it does turn uh, on there being forces on the ground that are willing to take on ISIL. And that, that also now requires uh, that there should be a settlement in Baghdad that would bring uh, Iraq together up to a point. They've had a terrible ten years, and it's certainly not going to be easy. But unless there are ground forces uh, in Iraq, and, and the uh, Kurdish Peshmerga are a, are a start, uh, but I think the northern tribes in Iraq are much more important, uh, that must be uh, the basis, if you were, uh, if you like, and we, the West, um, uh, with regional support, must pr provide the air support that they will need. So, Sir Andrew, you're saying then any possible military solutions must be linked to a broader picture concerning the political picture, and a component of that is sorting out the governance from Baghdad. In other words, the Shia Sunni problem. Exactly so. Uh, I think that's the first thing, and I think the Americans are right to insist on progress on that front. It will be very difficult to achieve, let's not underestimate that. Uh, but you'll recall that uh, the last time there were problems in northern Iraq uh, with al-Qaeda, it was the northern tribes that sorted it out with American help. Well, we're in a new situation now, but that pattern is not entirely uh, without value. Um, they are the only people that who, who can really take on ISIL, and they, they could certainly do it successfully if they had uh, targeted uh, Western air support. Let's turn our attentions now to Israel and indeed Gaza. Uh, what's your assessment, Sir Andrew, of the land grab earlier this week, which went largely unnoticed in Palestine? Uh, neither the US, NATO or the EU had anything particularly to say about it, save for one comment, I think, in the House of Commons earlier this week when David Cameron made his uh, opening statement. I think it's outrageous. Uh, I think that we have uh, long underestimated the impact on Arab and Muslim opinion uh, of the way in which uh, Israel behaves. Uh, I think that uh, the way in which they were uh, bombing and shelling uh, targets that were very close to civilians, put it like that, uh, brought upon them such uh, worldwide revulsion uh, that they had to agree to a, a ceasefire, an indefinite ceasefire. Uh, so uh, that was a, a step forward, but um, there's a much longer negotiation ahead of us, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not an optimist. 
The US, of course, much more focused on what's going on in uh, northern Iraq, Syria and so on, driving mm. the I IS forces back. Yes. Of course, not a lot of people know uh, Syria has a very sophisticated air defence system, uh, the second most powerful after Israel, I believe. Uh, that would be a, a very difficult uh, thing to get right, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. There's no question of uh, air activity over Syria uh, without an understanding with the Syrian authorities that uh, they won't be using their aircraft events uh, against Western forces. Uh, their their anti-aircraft capabilities, you know, was supplied by the Russians uh, to deal with Israelis, so it's quite sophisticated. Uh, and one of the difficulties about attacking Syria a year ago which, by the way, I entirely opposed, was you'd need an enormous bombing campaign to take out their air defence. Well, that doesn't arise now. Uh, what arises is whether uh, some understanding can be reached uh, on that question of Western uh, air power over Syria. That doesn't mean, let me be absolutely clear, it doesn't mean absolving Assad for all the terrible things he's done. It doesn't mean rehabilitating him after all that's happened in Homs and in other places. Uh, I, I think there'd be public revulsion against that. But um, I think the, the, our interests now are in common in respect of ISIL, and I wouldn't rule out some at least oblique means of making sure that Syrian air defence did not shoot down Western aircraft attacking ISIL. Sir Andrew, let me just bring in Christopher Lee on that. Uh, mm -hmm. Your take then on the events in Syria and indeed uh, bringing Assad in from the cold, is that something that the Europe uh, and, and the uh, Americans should be considering? I think they probably should have been considering it for the past couple of years, really. Um, the, the idea that, the, that a lot of the leaders that we're talking about now, the so-called what you used to call Western leaders, um, had all these ideas of, of supporting the rebel groups um, and talk of uh, arming them, uh, etc., was went against logic and experience. Sound policy would be to let regional states sort out their problem. The difference is that once IS emer emerged, the problem was also ours, and that it would be that would be that with the ca the Cameron issue. And so, when you hear statements which you would not have heard, say five, ten years ago, that things going on outside of the NATO area, this is what people are talking about now, uh, do affect us at home, and the talk about stepping up uh, in intelligence operations uh, and also states of security, that shows the picture needs two other things. One, it needs to come to some, not rapprochement, not agreement, but some way of actually saying quietly, through people mm -hmm. like um, <clears throat> and, and agreeing with what they would have done and saying to them, listen, a way out of your problem, Assad, is to sort of cooperate with us, not publicly, but cooperate with us, and then we can start getting into the problem of Iraq because although uh, uh, we don't often recognise it, there is not a border now between Iraq and Syria. IS has crossed that border and keeps it open, and mm. IS is as much a threat to um, President Assad, who after all is, is an Alawite and therefore part of the Shia organization or the Shia uh, uh, tract of, uh, of, of Islam, um, he's got as much of a fear of, of, of IS as anybody else in that region, including, for example, Saudi Arabia, one of the big players who this week in, uh, arrested about 40 dissidents because they feared that they might be under the 
authorship, if not if not the total support of IS, be threatening the Saudi government. Sir Andrew, you're a former ambassador to Syria, as we said. Who has failed to see the pieces of this gigantic jigsaw puzzle falling as they are now? Uh, who's let us down? Well, first of all, I agree uh, pretty well 100% with what Christopher Lee has said. Uh, secondly, uh, what has uh, the, the point that people have failed to understand is that uh, if the Assad regime falls, there will be absolute chaos in Syria, uh, and from that will emerge a regime run by Islamic extremists nowadays known as the Islamic State. So I think that uh, what has failed us is that we have overestimated the... Um, the, the, the potential of the so-called Arab Spring and underestimated the chaos uh, that would result when uh, regimes are overthrown. And we've seen that now in Libya, we've seen it in, to some extent in, 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 in Egypt. Uh, I think there's been a failure to understand uh, the need, well, the, the workings of some of these countries and a ridiculously optimistic belief uh, that democracy is on its way. It's not. Further attention to be paid perhaps to Iran and Turkey? Yes, both of them. They're both they're very difficult, very different propositions, and both actually quite difficult. Uh, but uh, they both have an interest in bringing ISIL under control, uh, or indeed defeating them. Uh, but they also have other considerations that limit their freedom of movement. This is where some intelligent diplomacy would be helpful. Sir Andrew Green, thank you very much for joining us on SITREP. So, Christopher, we rely then on these three friendly institutions the UN, NATO, the EU, briefly, uh, do they still work? They do work, uh, because we haven't got anything else. But the importance, we go back to something you and I talked about right at the beginning of this. If you're at the NATO meeting today, do a lot of trawling around the corridors because you want support when this whole thing goes to the world government, the United Nations. And the only way you can do that is getting that support before you go there. Christopher Lee, thanks very much indeed. Bridget Kendall and Sir Andrew Green, similar. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at, at BFBS SITREP. Don't forget, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.